Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell. Happy New Year and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast. Today, we're going to cover what you need to know from a tax, investing, and financial planning perspective as we head into this new year. Now, as you know, the government makes changes every year in these areas. The implications of these changes can have a pretty substantial impact on how much you pay in taxes, your net worth, and what government benefits you are eligible to get and how much you get. Now, these can easily affect your net worth in the thousands of dollars every single year. So it's definitely in your best interest and in my best interest to know about these changes and get a bit of a refresher every year so that we can all better prepare, and also take advantage of any opportunities that arise in these areas. So to help me with this, I have certified financial planners, Jason Heath and Hannah McVean on the show. Jason is a popular returning guest on the show, definitely one of the more well-known and respected financial planners here in Canada. So it's definitely great to have him back again. And Hannah and Jason are both fee-only financial planners, which means they don't sell any investments. So there isn't that potential conflict of interest that you see a lot of here in Canada where someone calls themselves a financial planner or they call themselves a financial advisor. You think you're getting a good financial plan and that they have your best interests at heart, but really they are just trying to get you to buy the investments that their firm sells so that they can earn a hefty commission. So none of that here. We're going for a purely unbiased financial education in this episode with Hannah and Jason. And just a quick little bio on these experts. So Jason has been providing fee-only, advice-only financial planning since 2002, so well over a decade at this point. He is also a personal finance columnist for the Financial Post, Money Sense, and Canadian Money Saver magazine. He has a Bachelor's of Economics degree from York University, and he holds the Certified Financial Planner designation. Definitely a designation that I suggest you look for if you're ever out there hiring a financial planner to help you. Hannah is also a Certified Financial Planner and a Chartered Investment Manager. She has experience working in the wealth management industry, managing investments and filing taxes. She is now on the fee-only, advice-only financial planning side of things. And if you want to speak to Jason, Hannah, or someone from their team, you can reach them over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Hannah and Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Cornell. Thank you very much. To kick things off, can you take us through what we need to know for 2024 when it comes to our TFSA? And can you give us a quick refresher on how the TFSA works when it comes to taxes and getting our contribution room back every year? Okay, so as a quick refresher, TFSA is tax-free savings account. So you don't receive a tax deduction when you contribute to your TFSA, but instead these contributions are made with your after-tax dollars. But any investment income that you earn inside the account is tax-free forever. And since the original contributions are already post-tax, withdrawals from your TFSA aren't taxable at all. So in fact, there's actually no tax slip and you don't even report that on your tax return. So every year, um, every Canadian over the age of 18 gets new TFSA contribution room. Each person gets the same dollar amount of new room in January and the contribution amount increases every few years. And this year in 2024, It's $7,000 of new room. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now, do you often suggest that clients keep their equity, so their stock or that stock portion of their portfolio in their TFSAs due to the higher expected return that they tend to get as opposed to something like bonds or like a TFSA savings account? Mm -hmm. 
Good question. I feel like it's that people are sort of torn on the right approach here. I'm personally, I'm a fan of equities in TFSAs, you know, have your highest growth in your tax-free savings account. It kind of depends on what you're investing in to a certain extent and whether your other investments are RSP investments or non-registered investments, how soon you might need mm. withdrawals. So the big asterisk is it depends. By, by default, mm. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of TFSAs being, you know, as risky and not risky as in speculative, but risky as in, you know, stock exposure, grow, grow that tax-free room as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And I guess if someone is a pure asset allocation ETF investor, which is fine, then they don't really even have to worry about that because they just, mm -hmm. once they find the asset allocation ETF that's right for them with the asset allocation they want, they just buy that in their TFSA. So this is just more so for the the listeners who like to break things out a little bit and actually buy individual ETFs, uh, things of that nature, or for the listeners that are more so on the, maybe they dabble in stocks a little bit, things of that nature. So you probably want to have those in the TFSA instead of like a like a bond, like a purely bond ETF, mm -hmm. for instance. Especially savings. I find the tax-free savings account, the savings oh, part yeah. of it, like you see a lot of people that yeah. are just sitting on, on cash that could be invested in their TFSA or could pay down debt or could be used for RSP contributions or other things. So I kind of wish it was like a, a tax-free investment account or investment something like account. that. It's an, it's an yeah, issue. yeah. It's still okay to keep your high interest savings in your TFSA if you don't have other like investment assets, I suppose, if you're a beginner. I think that's still yeah. a, a fair call to mm -hmm. keep your emergency fund in there until you have enough and then you know maybe start prioritizing putting your equities in there, but it doesn't make sense to pay income tax on your interest if you don't have any other investments. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess if you're like, uh, let's say, straight out of university or yeah, college, mm -hmm. so you're you're probably in a lower tax bracket anyway. So you're saving that RSP contribution room. You don't have much in terms of investment. So it's like, okay, yeah. maybe can then use that. I could see that making yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Just Especially. getting started. Yeah. But I know what you mean, Jason, with, I get, I'm sure you guys get them too, ads all the time, especially now that the rates are higher, where you get these providers trying to tempt you to put your money into like a TFSA savings account. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. So it's like, not only is that there's a, there's that confusion where I'm sure there's still plenty of Canadians who think that the TFSA is just like a, better checking or like savings account and not realizing they can actually like buy ETFs in it and things of that nature. Oh, but no, now it's like they, they've got all this like advertising hitting them too, saying like, oh yeah, look at this great rate we're going to give you. Not realizing that actually you should probably be, well, obviously depending on your situation, but typically you should probably be pumping if you're having anything in equities, it should probably be there. So yeah, yeah. Something to be vigilant about for sure. What have you guys found to be the most efficient way for Canadians to determine how much TFSA contribution room they currently have? Hmm. I would say it's hard to be efficient with this unless you're maxing it out every single year. I would be very wary of the TFSA contribution room figure that's showing up on your MyCRA account, Yes, especially in the first couple months here. Yeah. I think it's probably more important to be thorough in checking your TFSA room rather than efficient, if that's okay to say. Mm -hmm. But if you max your TFSA annually, it's pretty simple, right? You take the new contribution room that you have of $7,000 and you add the value of any withdrawals from the previous year. If you don't typically max it and are planning to get close to the max this year, you you can use the figure on my CRA, but you subtract any contributions you made in the previous year 
and add any withdrawals that you made. And then you got to make sure you check multiple TFSA accounts. So some people hold multiple TFSA accounts. They sometimes forget about a contribution that they made in January of last year. So if that sounds confusing, mm -hmm. maybe the best thing to do is just wait a few months until that number gets updated on MyCRA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're notoriously behind on updating records. They don't make mm -hmm. it clear. It's yes. not like they say, no. this is out of date. This is from this doesn't, <laughs> yeah. this has not been updated for, yeah. for whatever. And I don't know why. Like on your notice of assessment every year, it shows your RSP room. I don't know why they don't show your TFSA room. They make it make it tough for sure. And you don't want to over contribute because mm -hmm. there's a penalty of one percent per month of the over contribution. And if you have an over contribution for a long time, those penalties and interest and whatever can grow pretty big. Yeah, I think they put like an asterisk or something when you go on your CRA, like, hey, this is your TFSA number, but it might not be accurate. <laughs> Basically, like, don't trust us. <laughs> this is what. <laughs> and they mean that. Don't trust them. <laughs> you have to. You have to be very diligent in checking, and it can actually get even worse because sometimes you see some institutions. If you hold multiple TFSAs, some institutions have submitted their TFSA returns and updated their figure, but your other institution with their TFSA maybe hasn't. So it can get even more confusing, right. and is actually a good argument for for only having one. TFSA, really, yeah. I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you think like Q2 of the calendar year, they should be relatively up to date? Or, or do you- still check. Yeah, you, okay. You still verify. <laughs> you go into the history and you look and see what contributions and withdrawals were reported yeah. for the year. Yeah. That's, how, that's the only way. And then you have to check against your own record. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. Yeah, I hear you. I've definitely have seen that number on my account and it has definitely been wrong. And so okay. I've been, I was very, felt, give myself a pat on the back where it's like, ah, this is why I track, I have my own spreadsheet where I track all of this. Because it, it totally would have bit me if I didn't do that because I would have just looked at that and, oh, I guess I can contribute. And then then you get that nice letter in the mail saying that you over contributed and here's how much you're going to be paying and penalties and things of that nature. So yeah, I definitely want to, but, it, but it's kind of tricky, right? Because it's like you trust the RSP contribution room number. At least I do. You're supposed to, right? That's pretty accurate, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I... <laughs> okay, that's actually an interesting one because I've seen once before where somebody's pension had coordinated past service pension contributions on their behalf mm. behind, like during the year, went and, you know, basically their RSP contribution room got reassessed and they didn't really see it. So sometimes hmm. you still have to check yeah. Yeah. that one. Be careful I, about taking well. tax advice from, from CRA. <laughs> yeah. Which you would think it's like, oh, the CRA, it's a legitimate source. It's not some like unknown blog yeah. or some, you know, some video I saw online. <laughs> it's like the CRA, you should trust the numbers. They have all my information. But yeah, yeah I, I hear you. It's like, it's one of those things where going for efficiency can actually bite you. You actually want to be thorough. Mm -hmm. I think that's fantastic advice. <laughs> can you guys speak to how you can actually increase or decrease your available TFSA contribution room depending on how your investments perform? Well, just to echo, I mean, so, Hannah sort of referred to this previously, but you know, every year, if you're 18 or older, you get TFSA room, you get the same amount of new room, regardless, doesn't have anything to do with income or anything like that, like an RSP. And any past accumulated TFSA room gets added along with the new annual TFSA limit. So if somebody's never contributed to a TFSA, and if they were 18 or older in 2009, when TFSAs were introduced, you'd have $95,000 of TFSA room this year. And the only way you can increase it is if you take a withdrawal from your TFSA, 
the next year that withdrawal gets added back to your TFSA room. And that next year part is really important. You can't just use a TFSA like a, a bank account and put money in and out and in and out over the course of the year. You've got to wait until the following year to get that room back. So I find some people think that it's like a strategy to take a TFSA withdrawal. I made a bunch of money. I'm going to take a TFSA withdrawal. And I mean, you're pulling out 10,000, you're getting 10,000 of new room. It doesn't, it doesn't create brand new room. If you take withdrawal, right. like there's not a, you know, mm-hmm. not a strategy to bump it up really per se. For sure. But I guess it does answer the question of if someone's like, Hey, why does my friend have this much in their TFSA? And I have way less when we are both the same age, we should have the same contribution room. Why is their mm-hmm. thing so much higher? And they said they just like took it out, took out so much out, and now they have it back. I guess that would answer that question. Well, it's like, well, because if their investments grew more, then they now have actually have more room. And also, if they did some crazy stock picking and things did not work out, they'll actually have less than you, right? Totally, that's a huge issue and something to be totally cautious of when putting your riskier investments inside your. TFSA. If the investments mm. perform poorly and don't recover, you, you can't make up that contribution room ever. You know, yeah. and it's something important. So that's something we coach people on a lot is to maybe choose yeah. that carefully where they're putting those. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be an interesting conversation you guys have as financial planners, because it's like the stocks you expect to grow so well, they'll go in their t- the TFSA. And of course, every investor that invests in, especially mm-hmm. individual stocks, they think they've got the next big winner, oh, you know, and it's, you know, and maybe not realizing, like you realize if you're wrong on this call, you're actually going to basically lose some TFSA room that the government gave you and you're not going to get that back. And that's like, you know, you wait for the whole year to get more, but then everyone gets that contribution room. So it's, that's got to be an interesting one. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Where like it can work out really well, but also really badly too. Totally. And the other thing is that you can't claim any capital losses if they right. too. So you get penalized twice. So yeah, that's something I like to do with when we're doing financial planning for our clients is just coach people not to make bets with their TFSA and help them understand that that room is finite once you once you mess it up, it's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And now a quick intermission to tell you about an additional free resource that you may find helpful. On this podcast, we often cover best practices that can not only help you now, but will also be relevant throughout your investment lifetime. But what if you also want an update on what is happening with your investments, the markets, and the economy right now? So to help me stay up to date on these topics, a great Canadian podcast that I listen to weekly is called Views from the Desk. They provide timely information for us Canadians on what is happening to our investments right now, as well as other key factors affecting us like changes to our interest rates, our inflation, and regulatory changes that we should know about here in Canada. The podcast is hosted by BMO ETFs. I'm a huge fan of theirs. I own a lot of BMO ETFs myself, and it's a great resource for both new and existing ETF investors. I hope you check them out. All episodes are available for free in your favorite podcast player. Just search for Views from the Desk. And just a really quick announcement before we dive back in, in case you don't end up staying until the very end of this episode, as it is a pretty long one, we created a page for Jason and his team where you can actually sign up to get a free consultation as well as a discount if you do end up using any of their financial planning services. So the discount page, it's over at Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash jason and for a limited time they are actually offering a 10 percent discount 
to Build Wealth Canada listeners if you end up becoming a client. And they are also doing a giveaway for Build Wealth Canada listeners where a lucky winner will get a full financial plan done for free. So if you have any personal finance or financial planning related questions that you'd like answered, I really can't recommend them enough. They are easily one of the most reputable firms that I've been able to find in Canada. They have 4.9 out of 5 stars on Google reviews. And a big thing is that they don't sell any investment products. So you know you're actually getting unbiased advice as opposed to someone that's going to try to sell you some product on the side to get that commission check. So a big thanks to Jason for actually offering the discount to listeners of the show and for giving away a free full financial plan. It'll take a lot of time to make. Uh, so big thanks to Jason for, for doing that. Uh, and if any of that sounds appealing to you, you can sign up for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. And it is for a limited time. So definitely do it now if you can, so you don't miss out on the giveaway or the discount. All right. So now let's get back into the interview. What kind of analysis do you guys do on TFSAs when you are working with clients? And are there any optimizations or mistakes that people sometimes do that you are particularly on the lookout for? I mean, I'd say one thing that we see, I mean, carrying along this thread, you do see some people that have, you know, a really big exposure to a particular stock or sector in their TFSA that's big relative to their portfolio, where it's like mm. taking on too much risk. But sometimes I see people that have, you know, they're sitting on cash in their TFSA. And meanwhile, they've got, you know, debts that they're carrying at a higher interest rate. And if somebody has a, you know, secured line of credit, for example, at prime plus one, these days they're paying 8.2% interest. And if you've got a, mm -hmm. you know, an account that's earning 1% in your TFSA, you know, if you're earning 1%, but you're paying 8.2 on the other side, you're falling behind. So sometimes it's even stuff like that, you know, should somebody be using their, their TFSA to pay down debt or if they're high income earner and they've got RSP room, you know, there may be an advantage to tapping your TFSA, taking a TFSA withdrawal, contributing to your RSP. So it tends to be more like mm. strategy, overall financial planning strategy, as opposed to, oh, that's the wrong stock to hold in that TFSA. But you see that mm, too. That's a great point. <laughs> gotcha. Great. Like if someone is, let's say, teetering on a tax bracket where they're just the book, like maybe they just exceeded, so they just got bumped up to the next higher one and they don't have enough to max out both RSP and TFSA. So in that situation, is that an example where you would say, hey, maybe instead of pumping money into maxing out your TFSA first, maybe you should put money towards RSP first because that could actually get you to the lower bracket. Is that a scenario where that would make sense from the example you were saying, Jason? Yeah, for sure. For sure. If somebody's got a high tax in a high tax bracket, particularly if they're in a high tax bracket, maybe on a one-time basis, they received a big bonus, they sold a rental property. And, and especially if they expect to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, you know, generally RSPs make sense when you can put money in at a higher tax bracket than you're pulling money out. And, you know, you can certainly tap your TFSA to take advantage and use the tax refund to pump that back into your TFSA. So it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. And Hannah, on your side, have you ever run into any situations with clients, some mistakes that you see some people do that you think the listeners could learn from? I think we've covered them already, but I'll just reiterate them. So sure. using two or, or more TFSAs, it's just really risky to over-contribute. People do it all the time. It's so easy to happen. So just make your life easier. Consolidate them. Just use one. Just are they using risky investments in their TFSA? You know, And then also, the are they underutilizing their TFSA? Like Jason said, yeah. 
So yeah. the only the only one that I'll add is we don't I don't see this a lot. I don't know about you, Hannah, but if somebody is day trading in their TFSA, mm, oh yeah, of course, a few, few yeah. court cases where you know, and day trading, you can get in trouble day trading your TFSA because if it is if you're doing very frequent trading, it can be considered business income. And mm-hmm. if you are oh, okay. considered to be operating a business in your TFSA, it don't sounds weird, right? You're just sitting there like buying stocks at home. You're not operating a business, but CRA can take a different position and say, nope, that's fully taxable business income as opposed to tax-free TFSA profits. And there's no real line in the mm-hmm. sand to say this is what constitutes day trading. Hmm. Most people that are day trading know they're day trading and they're moving in and out of <laughs> stocks frequently. And again, like what's frequently, I don't know. Again, there's been some CRA cases where you can see there's been X number of transactions per month or per year, and that's led to a, a day trading position by CRA. From your experience, do you find just working with different clients over the years, have you found that people also tend to forget to reinvest their dividends? So they just end up, like you mentioned, someone sitting on too much cash in their TFSA. Maybe there wasn't cash there initially, but then they just forgot to reinvest, you know, and now there's like thousands in there that's accumulated that is just sitting there pretty much idle. Does that something that happens or do you think people are pretty good with that? I've definitely seen it in all account types, I guess. Mm -hmm. People forget that there's that, that job that needs to be done, but typically people who are DIYing are pretty on top of it, mm-hmm. I find. Yeah. If they're diligent enough to learn how to be good DIYers, they probably yeah. have that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll see a big cash line there and say, what is that? Yeah, probably yeah. They don't want that. <laughs> they probably look forward to and enjoy it when they get that notification. I know I do. It's like, because it feels like free money, right? Or just like, oh, I don't have to do an hourly job for this. This is great. <laughs> it's like, a, it feels like a bonus every every quarter you get. You know? I did have a client case recently where a client who, who tends to chase sort of introductory rates for savings accounts and GICs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, found a relatively large account. It was a TFSA account in, in this case that they had forgotten about for a few years. I mean, it's nice to find money. I don't, I don't find money. Like I find bills. I find like repairs <laughs> and kids expenses. I don't, I don't find money, unfortunately, but some people are lucky enough to to find it. So you got to be careful about, you know, opening multiple accounts in multiple places, especially in extremes like that. For sure. That makes sense. All right. Awesome. Let's change gears a bit and talk about RSPs next. Are there any changes to RSPs that we should be aware of for 2024? And for anybody new to all of this, can you give us a refresher on how RSPs work for us Canadians when it comes to minimizing our taxes? For sure. Okay. So the new RSP limit this year is $31,560 or 18% of last year's earned income, whichever is lower. Plus, we also keep any unused contribution room from the previous year. And it's also really important to remember this year that the the deadline is February 29th, not March 1st, like it commonly is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So RSPs are tax-deferred accounts. So that means you're not charged uh, income tax when you put money into the account up to your contribution limit. When you report the RSP contribution on your tax return, your net income line is reduced by like the amount that you put in. And many people are employed and have already had tax withheld by their employer on their paychecks. And that's why they'll often receive a big tax refund for making an RSP contribution. Other thing to remember is that tax in an RSP is just deferred to a later date, ideally when retired. So the benefit 
with an RSP and the key to it, which is what Jason had mentioned earlier, is recognizing that the purpose is to reduce our tax rate over our life and not remove it. So because of our progressive tax system, we're basically trying to reduce our taxable income today to a lower marginal rate and do the same thing in retirement and overall reduce our lifetime overall tax rate. Mm -hmm. And in case someone's hearing about the RSP deadline for the first time, is a good way to summarize it to just say that basically in that those, those two months, you guys to basically choose whether you want that to apply to your previous tax year or the current exactly. one? Exactly. Yes. Okay. And that's okay. why you have until February 29th to, to make that RSP contribution. You need time to analyze your 2023 income to make a decision about whether you should contribute or not and how much. So the deadline aligns up quite tidily with when the you're due to get your T4. The deadline is February 29th. So that most people look at their T4 and then make a decision. Alternatively, business owners and those with rentals might want to need time to go through all their expenses, add it all up, and then make a decision from there. Interesting. So is that why the government did it that way? So that you have you know time what? to kind of absorb and think and say, okay, do I want I to apply to this? That, yeah. But now that you're asking, I'm like, come. hey, I actually don't. <laughs> yeah. Because it complicates things, right? For like the average Canadian, it's like, oh, wait, wait, it's a new calendar year, but it's still applying to it. Like it's, it adds confusion, but I wonder if that's why. But yeah, mm -hmm. you're so right, Cornell. I actually don't know if that's the reason. I just assumed. And now as soon as you're like, is that it? I'm like, wait. <laughs> I, I should not have asked you that question. It's like, can you please tell me exactly what the government's intent was, even though you don't work for them directly? <laughs> it makes sense though. Yeah. Because it gives you time to digest a bit and then decide how you want to play the things strategically. Owners, they, you know, they have to take a long time to do their books, yeah, you know, for sure. to get it all in order. <laughs> Makes sense. Like the one place where people get confused sometimes on that extra 60 days too is the odd time, you know, we'll see somebody who will send in an RSP contribution receipt for, you know, January 2023, let's say, with their 2023 taxes. And technically, cool. that January 2023 contribution should have been claimed on their 2022 tax return. Mm -hmm. Likewise, with a contribution made in the first 60 days of 2024, it should be claimed on your 2023 tax return. And claimed is a, is a really important word to sort of elaborate on because you report the contributions that you make in the first 60 days on your tax return for the previous year. You actually don't need to deduct them. You don't mm -hmm. have to deduct your RSP contributions in the year that they're made. You can carry them forward indefinitely to use in the future. But normally, people don't carry forward RSP contributions for very long because they mean tax refunds and people prefer to get mm -hmm. tax refunds <laughs> in their hand. So just a little nuance to be aware of. And, and maybe one other one is if somebody's in a, a fortunate position that they've already maxed out their RSP for 2023. And they've got a bunch of money they want to invest for 2024. You could estimate your RSP room. So you don't get your RSP room technically, I guess, until you file your tax return and CRA calculates it based on 18% of your income for the previous year. But if you know you had a relatively high income or you know, say you had a $100,000 income and you know you're going to have 18% or $18,000 of new RSP room, your RSP room becomes available retroactive to January 1st of the year. So somebody could front and load their RSP contributions. Just be careful you don't misestimate and you know over-contribute because there's penalties there too. Mm -hmm. And I guess we should mention too that 
when we talk about the RRSP deadline, we're not saying that you should definitely wait until close, you know, until the new year to start putting money in your RRSP. This is more so, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, like from your experience, this is more like of a call to action for people that have sort of been not, I guess, investing throughout the year, perhaps. And then now it's like, hey, this is sort of your last chance to have it apply to your previous year if you want it. So if you're going to take action, kind of now is the time because the deadline's coming and then you won't be able to apply it to the previous year anymore. Is that a fair statement to say? Would you agree with that? I think so. I, I, I feel like mm-hmm. it's more like bank marketing. It's RSP season, yeah. you know, get in, give us your money. I, I always found it sort of like that. Like there's no reason that you should have to panic in February and make an RSP contribution, right? But ideally, right. people are, are proactive and making their RSP contributions over the year rather than scrambling at the last minute, unless there's something extraordinary that happened. Again, a really high income year or some sort of a windfall and but it's RSP season in February, so it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because when I see this marketing around that time of year, it, it definitely seems like it's more targeted to people that have not been, let's say, investing a portion of every paycheck. They, instead, it's like, oh, shoot, I forgot. I should probably be saving for my retirement. And then my advisor just told me that I should be you know, putting that, that, that there's this deadline, so I should probably go and do it now. It seems like it's more geared towards that. Whereas really the best practices, the best practice I would argue is you're saving a portion of every paycheck and investing that, not waiting for some, you know, this deadline because you forgot because you've been procrastinating on it for this entire, not to say everyone procrastinates, but just, I guess I'm just don't want it to sound like, oh, it's normal to wait until the end of February. It's like that, that shouldn't be where your head's at. It should be, no, I'm investing a portion of every paycheck. It, It would, would you agree with that? Or do you have a different opinion on it? That's totally fine. I just want to mention one alternative strategy is sometimes people save and invest all year long and then wait to get their pay stub or business books done, figure out what an appropriate amount of a contribution is and transfer their investments in kind Mm. to their RSP. Because some people have really variable income, like really variable and have trouble tracking it. Like if you're a young family who's super busy and you are paid on commission and your income is wildly variable, maybe it's just simpler for you to strategize on that in February. And sometimes I'll do that with people, again, who are just starting out. We might say, why don't you save to your TFSA now? And we'll figure out what an optimal contribution is mm-hmm. at RSP time and move the amounts in kind. Yeah. And that would be, of course, somebody who's not maxing, right? You know, like yeah. it's not close to doing that, but something to think about. I think the other thing is there's, you know, a lot of people who are working in the business world who get bonuses in the new year. And we see a lot of executives in particular who receive their annual bonus in February. You know, Canadian companies mm-hmm. tend to tie it to sort of the RSP deadline and people have a lump sum of money to invest then when they, whether they like that it or not. Thing. So, mm-hmm. gotcha. That makes sense. Oh, thanks for that. I, I never thought of it from that angle. That sounds good. Can you guys speak to the RRSP loan strategy? This is something that we often hear mentioned in different blogs and books on finance for Canadians, but do they still make sense in this higher interest rate environment that we're now in? I think if you're having that situation Jason mentions where you're having a high income year, like it's a one-off, maybe it can make sense to do that. Or, or maybe if you're 
yeah, if you've got a some one-off thing, if you're in the highest marginal tax bracket, you know, you'd get a half of the money back quite soon. So you could, you might only have to repay half, half the loan. But the problem is when people rely on this strategy is that you struggle to pay it down in general, even when interest rates are lower, people are taking out a loan and repaying it for an entire year. And then you're, you're just like on a hamster wheel here. Like you're never getting ahead on your RSP contributions. And now it's expensive. It's really expensive. So a TD RSP loan, I'm, I've checked it out and they're doing prime plus zero. So 7.2%. So, so, you know, some people might be familiar with the concept of evaluating whether you should borrow to invest by comparing the rate of return on what you could potentially get for an investment to the interest rate on the loan. So some people might say, oh, you need 7.2%, which is hard enough to get a guaranteed 7.2%, but RSP loan interest isn't tax deductible. Mm -hmm. So you need to factor in your marginal tax rate for a fair comparison. So if your marginal tax rate is 30%, you could argue that you need to earn over 10% a year Mm -hmm. guaranteed to come out ahead, which is very difficult. So yeah. Like, I would want to say impossible, but I won't for the guaranteed part. But so if you can pay it off quickly because you've got an upcoming windfall or something, or it's a one-time income event, it could still be a good fit, but you're still behind and starting the year out in debt. And those are all factors that are should be considered rather mm-hmm. than just the math. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. Do you know why asset allocation ETFs have become so popular? Asset allocation explains over 90% of the variation in a portfolio's quarterly returns. So it's no wonder Canadian investors are turning to these ETFs. Today's sponsor, BMO ETFs, offers these innovative all-in-one solutions with the BMO All Equity ETF, ZEQT, the BMO Growth ETF, ZGRO, the BMO Balanced ETF, ZBAL, and the BMO Conservative ETF, ZCON, and many more. BMO developed these to help provide investors with ETFs that offer broad diversification and are also low cost and simple to use. These ETFs invest in a number of underlying index-based ETFs and are rebalanced automatically back to your set asset allocation or mix of stocks and bonds. They offer a hands-free approach to investing that is built on disciplined weights to provide exposure to different geographies and sectors all in one solution. BMO actually offers eight asset allocation ETFs, and you can learn more at bmoetfs.com. And now back to the show. Can you explain just kind of at the 101 level for somebody new to all this, what actually the RSP loan strategy is, if they've never heard of it before? Basically, banks will generally provide an RSP loan on a, a pre-approved basis. Like it's it's relatively easy to get an RSP loan if you're borrowing the money and depositing it right into an RSP in that same bank. As Hannah alluded to, the loan interest rate tends to be around prime, often right at prime. So it's relatively low, you know, all things considered. And I guess the way that it's positioned is make an RSP contribution, get a tax refund. Generally, that's going to be between 20 and 50%, depending on somebody's income. And then turn around and take that tax refund and throw it back against the loan. But, you know, I don't have much to add beyond what Hannah already said. You know, it's, in my opinion, if you have an extraordinary case where you had a really high income year, maybe it makes sense to do it. But otherwise, it's a, like she said, a hamster wheel. You know, you might as well just start 
making monthly RSP contribution for the next mm-hmm. year, become a proactive RSP investor rather than a reactive one. And I honestly can't remember the last time I recommended an RSP loan to a client for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And we don't sell investments. Mm-hmm. We don't sell financial products. We sell financial advice. So take that as you will, that that somebody who's got nothing to, to gain doesn't recommend RSP loans or two people <laughs> that you're talking to on mm-hmm. the podcast today, right? Yeah. Awesome. And when it comes to RSPs, are there any common and or critical mistakes that you see Canadians make when you are doing financial plans for your clients? Okay. I've seen one. I've seen a pretty critical one. Making non-necessary withdrawals from an RSP while you're still working. For example, using an RSP to upgrade your home. Ooh. Not using home buyer's plan here, but I have had a client case I saw one time before we worked together had chosen to upgrade the home when they were earning the highest marginal tax bracket and they were young. So that means earlier in their career, they'd been in a lower tax bracket. So they contributed at a lower tax bracket and pulled the money out at a higher tax bracket. And then they're not, all they got in exchange was, well, they got the bigger house and that should be it's wonderful. It comes with bigger expenses too, right? So multiple kind of areas where that backfires. Mm-hmm. The RSP. One that I see sometimes is people contributing to an RSP at all costs just because they want to tax. Oh, yeah. I was just trading emails mm. with the client on this earlier today. And unless you can contribute the money when you're in a higher tax bracket, then you will withdraw the money. These are generally not advantageous. And if somebody is in the lowest tax bracket in particular, which, you know, is roughly $50,000 of of income, taxable income and below, you can end up in a situation where you're paying a higher tax rate on the withdrawal than the tax you saved on the way in. And the client that I was trading notes with this morning said, well, you know, I mean, I'd rather get the tax refund now and invest it and do something good with it. And that doesn't really factor into it. It's like short term it feels good in the short term to get a tax refund. Long term, mm-hmm. you can end up paying more tax compared to just leaving that money in a non-registered account or contributing to a TFSA or doing something else with it. Mm-hmm. Like tax refunds are nice, but we tend to focus on and prefer how do we minimize your lifetime tax, even at mm-hmm. the expense of paying a little bit strategically and intentionally today. In advance. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I coach people often if they're in that lowest bracket that using a TFSA often, and it's not, it's a generalization to say that people who have that income level might not have maxed out the TFSA, but I'm assuming in this case that they have room. So if they have room, if you have the same marginal tax rate now and in retirement, you get the exact same result, even considering that tax refund to invest in your TFSA instead. So not only, and there's benefits to that, right? So the downside is you pay the income tax now, but the upside is that you're preserving your RSP contribution room. So often in future years, what if you have the sale of a rental or you get a bonus or a pay increase? All these things would be nice reasons to be preserving your RSP room. And then also you maintain flexibility over those funds because when you pull money out of an RSP, you have that big tax consequence. So if you put the money in a TFSA instead, that gives you more flexibility, which can be really nice to have in the future, not having everything you own in tax deferred accounts. And Cornell, one one thing I'll add, the one sort of asterisk to the low income RSP contributor, maybe, you know, in support of them contributing, 
is if you've got an employer matching contribution, you've got a group RSP, your employer is going to match like 50% or 25% or 100% of your contributions. I would take that free money all day long. Right. Um, In the absence of that, like just putting money into your, you know, your own RSP with your advisor or, or on your own, you know, think twice, you know. That's a really good point. Because yeah, even though you're not getting the maximum RRSP benefits per se, because you're going to be in the same, let's say you're in the same bracket when you're withdrawing and when you're putting in, it's still, you're, you're getting this, by doing so, you're getting all this free money. <laughs> you're basically well, like doubling your money, essentially, in a lot of cases, okay. right? Especially for employers that, that do a full full matchup to a certain amount. So that's great. Yeah, that's a really good point. Jason, just to clarify on, on one, you said that in some cases, if someone's in the lowest bracket, they may actually end up paying more in tax in the future when they came on the RRSP. Now, when you said that, is that because once they retire, they might start receiving government benefits? And so that might actually bump them up to a higher bracket. And so now if you're factoring in like, you know, pension income, like, you know, CPP, OAS, maybe they're like a government employee as well. So they're getting a pension mm-hmm. and and they're withdrawing from RSP. So now they're no longer in the lowest bracket. Is that what you were referring to yeah. in that scenario? I, I'd say that one okay. example that it could be tax, you know, broadly, I'd say a, a clawback of, of government benefits, which, you know, there are government benefits at any age and stage that can be clawed back that are means tested and dependent on your income. But you know, often we do see people who lose access to government benefits in retirement because their income's too high and RSP withdrawals are considered income. So that's one example. Another example is if you've got, say you've got a high income spouse and a low income spouse and the family figures, well, we've got, you know, we've maxed out all of our RSPs. We've got extra money. We might as well keep maxing out the lower income spouse's RSP. But meanwhile, the lower income spouse in retirement who is able to split RSP or split RIF withdrawals with their spouse in retirement, that low-income spouse might be in a high tax bracket in retirement because their spouse has a big RSP or has a pension Mm. or other things like that. So you can have a high-income family with a low-income individual that should probably forgo RSP contributions for that low-income spouse. Mm. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah, I was thinking too with what you were saying, for people that are even lower income and they're getting the GIS, mm-hmm. if now they're taking money out of the RSP because they have to because of the RIF withdraws, they may no longer get that. They're going to get clawed back pretty severely from that government benefit. Whereas if, let's say, they had that money in their TFSA, that would not hit their income at all. So now they're maximizing their their GIS as well. Yeah, there's many implications. But yeah, these are great examples. Thank you. That's awesome. I will just give one example where it would make sense. It's just occurred to me as we're talking about this, and it's, I think it's important to mention, just if some people have income-tested benefits, like obviously there's Canada Child Benefit, yeah. but I'm thinking instead like affordable housing. I, I'm not sure about other places in Canada, but in BC here, we have some affordable housing that they charge a percentage of your income. Yes. So in those cases, sometimes it can make sense to, you know, to reduce your income with an RSP contribution for that reason. Mm-hmm. So there's other reasons to do it. And I did want to make sure that we mentioned that it's not a catch-all yeah. just mm-hmm. to do the income tax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in Ontario as well, there there's some Canada places where Canada. they do factor in your income as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Quebec, I've got a client right. in Quebec where I was shocked at how generous their provincial child benefits were. So that's a big thing that I okay. think advisors overlook, mm-hmm. especially if they're used to working. Totally. Right? hiring clients. Hmm. Totally. Gotcha. Oh, that's great. And then now 
let's shift gears and talk about the FHSA. It's a relatively new tool for Canadians. Can you speak to what it is, who is it for, and how do you like to analyze and factor it in when you're working on financial plans for your clients? Yeah, it's brand new. For sure. Some banks don't even have it, I think, right? In their, yeah. You can't even yeah. open one from what I hear totally. Yeah, <laughs> in some banks, yeah. Okay, so FHSA is a new type of registered account, and it's the only type that is allows you to save an amount that's truly tax-free. So you it combines the features of an RSP and a TFSA. You get a tax deduction when you add funds to the FHSA, just like an RSP, and then the growth on it and withdrawals from it are tax-free, just like the TFSA. So combine some of the features of both, but it's an oversimplification, of course. So that's not the extent of the rules, but it helps to understand why it's truly tax-free. So you can save up to $40,000 with these accounts, but you only get $8,000 of contribution room per year. So for those who opened their FHSA in 2023, they had $8,000 of contribution room. And those who, if now they would have another $8,000 for January. So if a client qualifies as a first-time homebuyer, and the definition is a little interesting, first-time homebuyer in the CRA definition, I would say, is somebody who neither they nor their spouse have owned a home in the past four years this year, past four years, and spouse is also a common law partner. So something to, to consider. So somebody needs to be a first-time homebuyer to qualify to open one. And often, if they do qualify, it can make sense to open one now, even if they might not be thinking of buying a home for the first time. You need to have the account open to start accumulating contribution room at all, which is unusual. It's unlike the other accounts. TFSA and RSP are you no know, you don't have to have the account open to accumulate room, but this one you do. It does need to be collapsed after 15 years, but you can transfer the money into your RSP without consequences if you don't use it for a home. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, it's, it's awesome. one of those accounts where I I wonder why they didn't just find a way to do it. You know, something with the existing RSP account. There's already a home buyer's plan that you can use yep. with your RSP, but it's like mm-hmm. one of those new accounts just to confuse people a little bit. Do I contribute to my RSP? My take for what it's worth, yeah. just for people listening out there, if you're, you know, you expect to buy a home at some point in the next 15 years, and especially if you expect to buy one in the next five years, open a first home savings account, open an FHSA, try to make contributions as much as you can to the account. The $8,000 annual limit, there's a weird little nuance where say you open an account, you put in a hundred bucks this year, next year, you know, you've got a new $8,000 of room and you only put in a hundred bucks. You figure, okay, well, I, I've got $7,900 of room from last year, $7,900 from this year. I can put in a bunch the, the year after that. You can only carry forward $8,000 of FHSA room cumulatively. So if you make multiple years of small contributions, you could actually end up with less that you can put into the account. So ideally, you don't want to make multiple years of really small contributions unless you never think you're going to max it out. And another little nuance that's that's kind of interesting is just like the RRSP, if you contribute to an FHSA, you don't need to deduct the contribution. So if you're mm-hmm. 18 or or 19, depends the province, age of majority, you know, depending where you live in Canada, or you've got a child or a grandchild, even if you're a parent who's got money, you want to help out your, your child or your grandchild they don't need to deduct the FHSA contribution. If they're a student, they've got no income, there's no tax savings, right? They can carry forward the deduction, claim it in a year when they're done school or their income is is higher. 
Mm-hmm. And then you can combine, you can combine the home buyer's plan yeah. and the FHSA. So previously you could only withdraw $35,000 from your RSP for home buyer's plan. So if you were a couple, then that would only be $70,000, which is a pretty small down payment these days. But now with the FHSA, you can combine them. So you can save $40,000. Who knows what that grows to? But you could take both of those out. So it significantly increases the amount that you can save. Yeah. And unlike the RSP and home buyer's plan, the money doesn't need to sit in there for 90 days before mm-hmm. you withdraw it for for a home. So that's a kind of interesting nuance. Some people come to us when they're already committed to buying a home. And so we don't have a ton of time to plan for it. So that can be an interesting way to get around that 90 day rule, mm-hmm. not get around it, but accommodate it. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. And are there any new, just shifting gears again, are there any new tax mm-hmm. credits, deductions, or government benefits in 2024 that you think we should especially be aware of? And are there any that you find Canadians sometimes tend to miss? I know there was a like dental one for the kids. That was a neat one. Are there, mm-hmm. is there anything else that you think is worth calling out? There's not a lot of super interesting stuff for this year, but a couple that come to mind for me. For the last couple of years, I guess since 2020, you've been able to claim home office expenses if you work primarily from home based on this simplified method where it's just like, Mm-hmm. Two bucks a day. For last year, it was $2 per day up to $500 maximum as a deduction. So for 2023 now, you need to claim your home office expenses using the detailed method, which requires mm-hmm. you to tally up you know, all of your various expenses for utilities. And if you're a commission employee, you can also deduct property taxes and insurance. So a little more work there to claim home office expenses. And we could go down a big rabbit hole with this, which I don't think is, you know, is, is a good use of time. But there was a, a change made with trust reporting rules, whereby it used to be that if a trust had no income, it didn't need to file a tax return. Now they need to file. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening say, geez, I don't have a trust. I mean, I'm not a, you know, <laughs> not a billionaire with a family trust. <laughs> but there's this nuance where somebody who doesn't think they have a trust may actually have a a trust, what they call a bear trust. So a couple of common examples might be if a parent has co-signed for a child's mortgage and they're on title for the house, that's considered a trust. The parent, even though they're a legal owner on, on paper of that home, that's not their home. Their kids live there. The kids are the beneficial owners. That's a trust. And you now need to file a trust tax return for that. And the other common example in Ontario, certainly where, where I am and in BC, where Hannah is, probate fees are, are I don't want to say high, like 1.5. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, not a, a big number, but there's a lot of aging Canadians, you know, parents, grandparents, whatever, that will add children's names to their real estate to try to avoid probate fees, whether that's a, a good or bad strategy is a whole other thing. But That's another situation where the child, they're a legal owner, they're on title, they're a joint owner of that piece of real estate, but they're not the beneficial owner. Beneficial ownership may still reside with with mom and dad. So that could also be considered Mm -hmm. a trust where you now need to file a trust tax return by March 31st or face penalties, whether CRA levies those penalties for a newly introduced thing that a lot of people are probably confused about. It's a whole other thing, but I would certainly count on filing it and, you know, talking to your accountant and getting the advice you need to make sure you stay compliant. Mm-hmm. For deductions that I think people miss a lot, like Jason spoke to the home office, which 
I think everybody knows to claim home office expenses these days, but I find people often are missing or don't know to claim other employment expenses. Now, whatever employment expenses people are allowed to claim really depends on the work, but for example, cell phone or car expenses or things like that. If and we're not talking about driving to and from work, that's a common misconception. You can't claim that, but I find that many employers are failing to give their employees a T2200 for employment expenses. And even if they do get that T2200, sometimes it's not filled out appropriate. So that's kind of a bummer, but I, that kind of one, you know, I don't know how to give advice for that one besides having a professional give it a look <laughs> because they're complicated to read weirdly, mm -hmm. but, but trying to make sure that you're claiming expenses for claiming all your employment expenses. And then one other one is people miss the disability tax credit more than mm -hmm. I'd like to see. So if you, if again, to anybody listening here, if you or a family member, including your child or multiple children, you want to claim this for every single child that has one, has a disability that is interfering with the activities of daily living, then you should apply for the DTC. And, and I'd recommend doing it when they're as young as possible. Diagnoses like ADHD, for example, sometimes will get a DTC when they're a child, but they may not be eligible when they're an adult. So not only do you get a non-refundable credit with it, but you can often have previous returns adjusted to account for the DTC. TC, allowing for huge amounts of money to be deposited into your bank account, which is lovely. And then you also become eligible for RDSP accounts once you're eligible for the DTC. So something mm -hmm. to really watch for. And people, people sometimes underestimate what, what qualifies. And so yeah. I just recommend applying. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because I mean, it's hard enough having to deal with that situation. And 100%. so to also not, if there's a money available, these benefits available, and maybe you don't know about it, or maybe you just, you think you're not eligible, but you actually are. I mean, that could be a life changer, I would I would think, in a lot of cases. So We're talking, now, yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars, yeah. and it's not just kids, right? So if you're an older couple, and one of you has had health concerns, that's another huge gap for the DTC that people often don't consider. They're like, oh, I'm not disabled. And if you actually think about it, you know, if you were to apply the testing, well, you have trouble moving around the house and you have you need somebody to prepare your meals for you and these this and that and they are mm -hmm. eligible so it's something to just keep in mind because it's worth a lot of money yeah mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah there's, there's there's so much nuance to it and, and just it can be a bit overwhelming right all the different details and all the different benefits and mm -hmm. knowing are do you qualify do you not qualify and maybe now's a good time Jason did you want to talk a little bit maybe about the the page that we set up where listeners of the show can get a free consultation with you and your team because uh, yeah this, we're talking about these issues here and obviously you try to help but there's so much of it is nuanced and it's very spe specific to a person's situation like what Hannah was just saying as well so we, we did set up a page it's buildwealthcanada.ca/jason so just slash Jason just the way it sounds but if you go there you can get a free consult with Jason and his team and then I know Jason's been nice enough as well where if you actually do end up becoming like a 
paying client after the console. Build Wealth Canada listeners get 10% off. So thank you, Jason, for, for doing that for the show listeners. And then also, I know you guys are doing kind of like a draw too, where you're going to be selecting a winner to basically have someone have their financial plan paid for. Did I get that correctly? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And maybe the one thing that, uh, that I will clarify is when we speak to, if you reach out, by all means, you know, mention where you've come from and we will pay special attention to you. When we have an initial consultation with a client, we don't really get deep into advice. It's more trying to understand their situation, trying to understand if and how we can help. And if we're not the right people to assist, I mean, sometimes we end up referring somebody off to a, a specialist in a particular area. You know, more often than not, that's with like cross-border issues or where somebody really needs a lawyer as opposed to a, a financial planner. But we always talk to everybody on a no-obligation basis to see if and how we can help and then put together a, a proposal for our services. We don't sell products. We don't sell investments, insurance. We don't get referral fees or commissions. We sell our time. We're like lawyers or accountants. We sell our advice for a fee and that keeps us objective, hence our name, Objective mm -hmm. Financial Partners. Mm -hmm. So 10% off to, to all listeners and don't worry, we're not going to like, you know, inflate the quote and then take advantage <laughs> of that. <laughs> Everyone knows it's a legit mm -hmm. Quote, we discount our fees. We appreciate Build Wealth Canada. I've been on the, the show before and appreciate you, Cornell. And yeah, we're going to do a, a draw as well to pick somebody to have their fee either a, refunded to them or you know covered as well for anyone that proceeds with our services. So happy to chat and see if and how we can help. We work with clients all across Canada as well. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I thought I'd mention that just because, yeah, we're, we're kind of getting into some of these complexity and there's all these nuances. And so there's definitely no substitute for actually having someone sit down with you, really getting a good handle on your situations, the ins and outs. And then based on that, you can actually give good conflict-free advice on what are some good courses of action to take, you know, as opposed to like taking some generic advice you might've read on a blog somewhere and then kind of hoping that it applies to you and that the, and hoping that the CRA agrees and doesn't end up auditing you, things of that nature, right? So yeah, so thanks so much for offering that. And, and yeah, so again, the page is buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. That will just like, it'll redirect you to a page that we we put up where you can sign up for, for the free consult there. And like I said, the fact that Jason and his team don't sell any financial products, I think is huge huge. I've unfortunately noticed a bit of a trend where there's certain financial planners that will call themselves fee-for-service and they're just like, yeah, we do fee-for-service. But then you work with them for a bit and they're like, oh, we actually also sell product and here's what, you know what I mean? And so it's kind of, it almost feels a little bit like a bait and switch in some cases. So it's nice to be able to recommend someone that I know if a Bill with Candor show listener speaks to you guys, I know you're not going to turn around and and be like, oh, have you considered this whole life insurance policy? You know, because the commissions are that are really good. On that are really good, right? So I should say there, <laughs> there is one other thing that we do sell. In fairness, and it's taxes. We we have got a tax practice, so we sell tax, oh, okay. tax services. <laughs> not you thought I was there. You thought I was going to disclose something. <laughs> <laughs> I know, eh? You're like, actually, have we? Have I mentioned our newest insurance product? <laughs> yeah, we, do practice, we do personal corporate taxes. You know, we find it works well because you know, financial yeah. planning and tax planning—they're so interrelated. And most of our 
accounting clients. We do their financial planning as well. We have some people who might work with us sporadically on the financial planning side as opposed to every year, but we're happy to work with people under any sort of relationship. Yeah, that sounds great. That was one of my questions was, do you guys do the tax filing and strategy? Well, I guess the strategy you do, but like, do you do the tax filing piece as well? Because yeah, like typically it's a bit of a pain point, I think, for a lot of Canadians where you're like, okay, I've got my financial planner and then I've got my tax accountant. There are two different companies. Hopefully they get along and can talk well to each other. And then I'm getting billed in the, you know, if they're not getting along, well, I'm still getting billed for all this, all the extra pain and all this. And you're hoping they can communicate, you know, whereas like having it all in one spot where someone's like, yeah, we well, you know all your numbers because we've also done your financial plan. We've also done your tax strategy. It just, I think there's definitely some synergy there for sure. Instead of trying to like merge everyone yourself into one umbrella, right? So awesome. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And yeah, again, it's buildwithcanada.ca slash Jason. And then that would just take everyone there. So awesome. Let's keep moving. But yeah, I thought that was a good time to, to mention. What have you guys found to be the best way to ensure that we don't miss any tax credits, deductions, or government benefits that we are all, or that we may be eligible for? Because yeah, like if you just Google that list, it gets pretty overwhelming. I guess, yeah, speaking to you guys, you guys can help people with that. Are there any other ways other than Googling it, which is, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit of a shameless plug to say it's probably easiest to ask for professional mm-hmm. assistance. A bit of a, but Jason, do you have any advice for people like that? I mean, I have to admit, like when I see the lists of you know what's new for 2024, and and I read them, most of the time they're they're pretty good. Like even if it's you know written by somebody who's a, a journalist and not a, a tax person, they've sought advice, they've done their due diligence. They're they're not bad, so. You know, media and social media is not a, a terrible place to get tax input, you know, and I, I think you need to to take that input and, and do your due diligence on your own, talk to your professional advisors, you know, and I will say, I don't have a, a ton of experience using, you know, like DIY tax software, we use commercial tax software, but my understanding, at least, is that the tax software these days, if you're doing your own tax return, it's not bad. Like it's it's got the prompt to ask you most of the right questions. Could there be something you overlook? For sure. But, you know, technology has improved. And I've always said that the more sources that you can get your financial information from and the more you can sort of build up your own knowledge, the more confident you're going to be making your decisions, the better off you're going to be in the long run. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the software that you guys use, does it actually suggest different credits as well once you input all the client's information generally no i'd say i'd say no yeah Hmm. i'd say no but if you do if you do several hundred tax returns every single year you kind (laughs) of they come quick so yeah yeah, because I've noticed, yeah, like with the consumer level software, like the, like the regular like retail mm-hmm. kind of software, right? I noticed they try to design those like quizzes so that yeah, yeah. to try to see if you are eligible. But I guess, yeah, if you're working with a company that like you guys that actually specializes in this, you know, this client situation. Yeah, like, so, you know, which exactly. ones would be applicable or not. You know, doing financial planning for a client and and doing their taxes as well. Oftentimes, I've found there's things that you pick up and you ask about that and I mean, disability tax credit that we were talking about earlier is a great one, you know, talking mm-hmm. to a child about their child and, you know, they, they're struggling, they've got a learning disability, they've been doing tutoring this year, and suddenly you find out that they qualify for the disability tax credit. And, you know, in some cases, I've got two or three cases in the last year where we've gone back and got, you know, large tax refunds, like $15,000 tax refunds mm-hmm. for people who've had like lifelong 
disabilities that, that qualify for the tax credit. So let alone other things like through conversation that stuff that you might not otherwise, you know, talk about with, with your accountant. So that's the other thing. Like we've mm -hmm. got lots of clients who are very happy with third party accounting relationships and we can collaborate on the tax and financial planning side. But I always tell people like, talk to your accountant, pay your accountant for tax advice. Don't just send them your stuff in April and, you know, do your tax return, do a consult with them. And, you know, their time has a value and, you know, to pay for an hour of time with your accountant, I think well worth it to, to make sure you're doing all the right things. For sure. Yeah. We were talking about this offline, Jason and I, about how it's not just, oh, tax time's coming. Here's my stuff. It's more, okay, there's that component. But then part two is we should actually be having a tax strategy meeting and that should be integrated with your financial plan. And that's not done like a week before taxes are due. That's something that you do early on. And then you make sure that you're going in the right direction and doing the right things throughout the year so that when tax time filing comes, it's like at that point, it's kind of more mechanical because you've already done all that tax strategy earlier and you've already been implementing those strategies, right? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, for sure. Especially, especially. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it can apply to, to anybody, but a common example that, that comes to mind is with retirees. Like oftentimes we're trying to take advantage of their low tax brackets in particular years. We might recommend RSP withdrawals, even though you don't need to take a withdrawal from your RSP or taking a, a larger withdrawal from your RIF than the minimum withdrawal that you're required to, to take or you know, for people mm. with non-registered accounts, maybe it's tax loss selling, maybe it's triggering capital gains in a low income mm. year. Like there's so much stuff you can do proactively that, yeah, I think it's a, a lost opportunity if you're not being proactive and, and trying to plan your income all year round. Can you take us through the updates for 2024 when it comes to the basic personal amount? Can you explain what it is and the financial planning implications of it for anybody that's not familiar? Basic personal amount is the amount of income that you can earn tax-free. So it's pretty small. It's only $15,705 for the basic personal amount. And then if your income is higher than $173,000-ish, it starts to get clawed back. So you asked for a financial planning implication. I've got an idea. If we have corporate clients who are deciding on their income strategy for the year and considering taking a large salary, which is not something you hear all the time, but I hear it more and more. But we might kind of consider having them reduce their salary to that point where their BPA starts getting clawed back. There's a financial planning mm -hmm. implication. Jason, you mm -hmm. got any more? Yeah, I think one that comes to mind maybe is with university, college, age, trade school age kids that have an mm. RESP account where mom and dad are taking withdrawals from an RESP, that, you know, 15,000-ish basic personal amount. That's the the federal, so there's a federal basic personal amount, there's a provincial or territorial basic, basic personal amount mm -hmm. that varies by province. I think it, it's as low as like eight grand in, in one of the provinces, and I think it's like 20 in one of the other provinces. So, you know, I think trying to take advantage of our ESP withdrawals early on while a child's at school if they're not yet working. And when you take an RESP withdrawal, some of the withdrawal is, is tax-free. Your original contributions can be pulled out with no tax payable. Some portion is taxable. That's the government grants, the government growth. So it probably makes sense to try to take advantage of that tax-free basic personal amount zone early on when a child's at school. 
and you can direct the RESP provider, like what portion do you want to be taxable? What portion do you want to be tax free? If it's a year where they're not working or you expect they might be working part time and, you know, later on in university or college or whatever, try to take advantage of those tax free zones and lots of, you know, other applications in between. But again, proactive tax planning, super important. That's a smart one, Jason. And I would add to that, that the consequence of not planning ahead with your RESP can be just that you end up with this kind of unwieldy, large account with a big tax consequence Mm. that now needs to be dealt with. So not only is it optimal to take advantage of the basic personal amount, but also it's just you're preventing a big problem down the line. So because eventually your child's not going to be in university anymore. So we want to plan for that. You've got to use that RESP while they're in school. Yeah, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you, you accidentally punish yourself for <laughs> being diligent and saving for your kids' education, right? People, yeah, people wait too long to use them, and you want to be using that right away as soon as they're in school. You don't have to spend all the money, of course, if you don't want to, mm-hmm. but start managing that early. Yeah. You start nudging them like, hey, maybe you want to be a doctor. We got some extra RSV money sitting around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Career change. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Now, just to finish things off here, as we enter 2024, can you take us through maybe a checklist of what you advise your clients to do as the year progresses? What should they be doing annually right now and as the year is moving forward? So I'm thinking about things like, you know, maxing out your TFSA room, taking advantage of RESP, new contributions, things of that nature, or the grant rather. Yeah. So I want to mention that we should still be looking like something like a TFSA contribution. Given that interest rates are so high, many people on fixed mortgages might be renewing soon. It's something to think Mm. about, about whether maybe putting the money into their TFSA is still appropriate, given that they might have a big change coming up in their lives. Just something to think about. So I just want to mention that things are a little different this year for a lot of people. So so even though maxing your TFSA is a great recommendation, just to remember to apply a filter of your own life to it and kind of think down the line with what's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that so, makes sense. So TFSAs, of course, you mentioned the RESP. I love that. So if you're saving for education for a child or grandchild, you can, assuming you max the account every year, in a new calendar year, you get an additional $2,500 or get an additional $500 worth of grant money. And if you put in $2,500 of new dollars, you get the grant money. You can also, similar, I don't want to get into the weeds too much here, but similar to the FHSA, how you can carry forward a year of contributions, you can do the same thing with your RESP. But you just got to, if people are doing so to maximize the grants, then you just want to watch that you're not getting too close to that $7,200 grant total for kids. Not that mm-hmm. putting extra into your RESP is a bad thing at all, but some people like to prioritize the grants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Sounds good. So you got TFSA maxing out RESP, taking care advantage of that new grant amount that you could get. Mm-hmm. And then we've got using any RESP room you may have from the previous year I have on my list as well, if if that's appropriate, obviously Absolutely. depending on your on your situation. Taking mm-hmm. and then also taking advantage of the new room that you're now gonna have. Again, assuming that it's appropriate for your tax situation. Is there any, anything that I missed, guys, that you think is worth mentioning in terms of like a to-do list? Mm. Well, as people go throughout the year, I would just really remind people to to track your receipts and expenses for taxes now. I know we're going into tax season, so 2023 tax season, but 
tracking things like medical expenses receipts is always good to start early because you never know what's going to happen later in the year. So if you're just wanting to keep your record keeping, it's just a good thing to just to do proactively. Sounds One cool. thing I'll throw out there, and it kind of ties in interest rates and, and taxes, actually, is the arrears interest rate, the interest rate that CRA charges on late payments has gone up. I, I actually don't even, is it 9% or 10, I think it's 10% right now. It was 9 I think it just it's jumped 10. 10% in January. It's 10. Can you believe five, it? Whatever it is. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that is a thing to be mindful of, even, even if you don't owe tax or, or you don't think of it as tax owing, if you're self-employed, whether you're a sole proprietor who's not incorporated, or if you're an incorporated business owner earning you know, corporate income, generally speaking, you pay quarterly tax installments, you've got mm-hmm. remittances, you need to make GST or HST or QST sales tax. It's really important to stay on top of that because if you have a, a balance owing, you're going to have an arrears installment interest amount owing and potentially penalties, and it can be quite costly. So really important, I think, for business owners to stay on top of, you know, prepayments of tax that apply for them. Good, good. Interesting. Yeah, that's a bit of a shift, I guess, right? Because, yeah, because if people are used to the lower interest rates and it's like, oh, I'm a bit late, but it's only a few percent, like I'll get it, I'll get to it next week or whatever. And I was like, no, no, it's quite a bit more now. (laughs) You probably want to (laughs) reprioritize. That used to be cool, but uh, not so much anymore. (laughs) Definitely a shift in thinking. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, well, yeah, well, thanks so much for that input. And yeah, th- thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us as well. Just so that we, yeah, we've got a nice checklist now, um, things to go over and things to be on the lookout for. And, and now we know we're not missing anything absolutely critical for the coming year. So like I said before, I, I did set up a page. So if you are looking to get a free consultation with Jason, Hannah, and their team, go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash Jason. That's the, the page that I built for them. So you can go in there and then you can you can sign up to chat with them. And again, thanks again, guys, for offering the 10% discount to the Build With Canada listeners and for doing that, that draw where people can actually win a financial plan or get their like plan credited back if they end up being the winner. So thank you so much for that. Maybe can you finish off by telling us a little bit more just to give you a chance kind of more in the spotlight. Can you tell us a bit more about the types of problems and challenges that you and your team really specialize in solving for Canadians? And after you. Well, so I would say typically just the type of people that come to us are wanting peace of mind about financial complexity. So a few cases typical cases we'd see. We see a lot of people who are looking for help understanding how what tax impacts they're facing by moving to a new country, cross-border issues. We see lots and lots of retirees who are wanting assistance in managing their decumulation tax effectively because they don't want to they want to avoid overpaying CRA. And we see a lot of people who are asking for help in wealth transfer issues. For example, their parents have property and they want to understand how to take that over and those types of questions. But we talk to almost anyone and everyone, if that's fair to say, Jason. I would agree. It's pretty varied. Like I feel like in the financial advisor world, you're told to specialize, you know, and you should have a niche and certain people that you work with or an elevator pitch and I've got clients that are in their 20s. We've got clients that are in their 80s. Mm-hmm. We've got clients that are in every province or territory. Probably 10% of our clients don't live in Canada. A lot of expats, typically Canadians, they're living and working in other parts of the world, but you know, planning to retire back to Canada eventually. But pretty much just people that are looking for 
advice that's not tied to products. Like we talk about investment mm-hmm. strategy and investing. It's an important part of financial planning, but I find the financial industry is so fixated on investments and like a financial plan is, you know, mm-hmm. how much do you have in emerging markets funds? Like that's not a financial plan, right? So tax planning, estate planning, retirement, I'd say a lot of the work we do is focused on retirement and whether you're 30 or whether you're 80, it's still mm-hmm. kind of the same. Like when you're 30, you're saving for retirement, you're in accumulation, you're preparing for eventual decumulation. At 80, you're decumulating and it's, you know, slightly different considerations, but ultimately it's, you know, how do you accumulate and then draw down your wealth in the most efficient way? And the other thing I'll, I'll mention, we work with, I'd say a disproportionate number of business owners. And I guess part of that Mm. is just, they don't have pensions, you know, they have variable Mm -hmm. income, they've got different considerations, they can pay themselves salary versus dividends, just a lot more going up, just save in your corporation, you invest in your TFSA or RSP, a lot of professionals, a lot of professional corporations, doctors in particular, but all different kinds of professionals. Mm -hmm. Happy to, to help anyone and everyone, no minimum net worth or income or anything like that. So we're not like other financial firms out there. You know, we're just here to help wherever we can. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, teaching us all of this and keeping us up to date on all the changes and what we should be on the lookout for. And until next time, I hope we can do this again next year. Awesome. Thank thanks for having Definitely. us, Cornell. That was fun. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share it with someone that you think may find it useful. And of course, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is always super appreciated as well. I'd like to end with a big thanks to one of our sponsors who, apart from my investing course, literally keeps the entire Build Wealth Canada podcast and website free for you. There are so many opinions on how to invest your money today, but it can be hard to find credible voices to rely on in the world of finance and investing. One resource I turn to every week is the ETF Market Insights YouTube channel led by today's episode sponsor, BMO ETFs. Market Insights brings in industry experts and their weekly episodes cover the hottest themes like inflation, infrastructure, healthcare, and more. Tuning in helps me stay up to date on what's happening so I can be a smarter investor. And you can also submit your own ETF questions to be answered on the show. So do yourself a favor and subscribe on YouTube to ETF Market Insights or visit ETFMarketInsights.com so you can be notified when future episodes go live. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 